Welcome to the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. And Don, we had a very interesting conversation today with Dr. Herb Emery, who's at the University of New Brunswick. He holds the Vaughn Chair in Regional Economic Development. And unlike most of our conversations recently, which have been pretty focused, we had a very high-level discussion about the state of the economy and about what uh, Dr. Emery thinks are the opportunities moving forward to uh, get this economy back into growth mode. Uh, what did you think of the conversation? It was a great conversation. I, I felt like I was stuck between two economists who put me in an unusual position. But uh, uh, I think we, uh, we really uh, had an export point of view, somebody who studies the region um, like you on a regular basis and, and provides a, a perspective that we don't, uh, we don't usually have. I think the conversation was pretty much in line with a lot of things that we feel, but it's good to hear kind of a third party uh, uh, validate some of the things that we've been talking about and also add some new color commentary to the challenges that we face in, in the region. Yeah, it was a really great conversation. Yeah, I think he's right about exports. I mean, you ob- obviously have to have population growth. That's fundamental. It's a fundamental condition. Uh, but you need to also have exports because we import a ton into this region. And just from a pure economic perspective, we need those export industries to offset the imports, but also to generate tax revenue for uh, to pay for public services. So I thought it was a good conversation. I think the public or the listeners will really enjoy some of his observations around energy, around uh, rural, urban, uh, and around you, you, re- you raised your issue of, uh, of uh, the growth uh, poles or the, the growth centers. Economic hubs. Economic, Economic hubs, hubs, yes. Sorry, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for clarifying that. And I think it's good for you to reintroduce that because I think that's a, it's a very, very good strategy for ensuring we get growth around the region, but also we can support those rural industries. Because as you've pointed out, if you've got a hub in Bathurst, if you've got a hub in Edmonston, if you've got a hub in Summerside, that actually supports, you know, your agriculture and your forestry and your fishing industries in the, in the really rural areas because it provides them with those urban services. No, that uh, that's right. And, uh, uh, you know, we have to we have to be uh, – he mentioned something that I think was really worth uh, repeating. He said uh, we were talking about have-not status in the region. He said, well, you know, if, if you live in a place like Halifax or Moncton, you're not living in a have-not sta- have status community. And, you know, we talked about this before. There's six communities that are really doing as well as any other urban community in the country. So that's not been our problem. Our problem is that we just have more rural communities than anywhere else in the country, and they're limited by economic opportunities. So we have to face that reality. Um, and I think, uh, you know, uh, but he made a really good point that we don't all live in the same status. We are all impacted by that status of being termed a have-not uh, region. But nonetheless, you know, parts of Atlantic Canada are not have-not. And I, I thought that that was a really good point. I hadn't thought about that before. He's right. But at the same time, we've got 45% or so of our, of our regional population living in rural areas. So we can't ignore that reality. And we have to understand that if there's opportunities in those rural areas for tourism and agriculture and forestry, fisheries and other mining, you know, we can't leave those opportunities off the table, even though I think we can all agree that the urban centers have the best potential for growth moving forward. Doesn't mean we ignore the rural areas. And I I think we kind of agree on that, Don. I I hope we do at some level anyway. No, I definitely agree on that. And and again, as I mentioned, there are 30 uh, urban centers in Atlantic Canada with at least 5,000 population that have critical mass. They have infrastructure like hospitals and post-secondary institutions that are ripe for strategy for growth. And that and their their growth would support uh, surrounding uh, urban uh, rural areas uh, to a significant extent. So I think you're going to enjoy this conversation without any further ado. Here is Don and my conversation with Dr. Herb Emery. We've been talking to about a number of important issues in recent weeks, including the evolving energy sector in Atlantic Canada, and we've been interviewing leaders from a number of important industries. Today, we want to look at things at a higher level. What is the state of the economy now in our region? Why is inflation hitting us harder? How can we get back to a sustained level of economic growth in this region? To answer these questions and more, we are joined by Dr. Herb Emery, Vaughn Chair in Regional Economics at the University of New Brunswick, 
and Director of the Atlantic Institute for Policy Research. Dr. Emery, welcome to the Insights Podcast. Thanks for having me on. So first, uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your career path, where you started, and how you ended up at the University of New Brunswick and in the Vaughn Chair? Sure. So the first 25 of my years of my career were spent at the University of Calgary, where I was doing a lot of work on labor markets and the regional economy around energy development in the West. And one little side note to it was I'd spent a lot of time working on policies to leverage more Maritimers uh, to move West. <laughs> and when I got the call about the position at UNB, which was interesting because I'd been living in a place that was growing rapidly, but to look at an economy that wasn't growing and sort of flip the problem on its head, which is instead of losing population to Alberta, what could you do here to keep population? So the opportunity to come to New Brunswick and focus on uh, regional development and look at the place like a living laboratory for an academic, it afforded some opportunities to really, for me to dig in and try and understand what does lead to growth, what doesn't, what things might work and what things might fail. And moving here has just been a real pleasure because you meet so many people who are close to the coalface that uh, it's like instant relationships and information you would never get living in a larger place. So Herb, we, we want to jump right into, a, you know, sort of the big macro point of view. Uh, want to know what your opinion is about the outlook for Atlantic Canada in the short term this year and, and perhaps into 2023. So it's a tricky proposition because the way I've come to see the Atlantic economy, Newfoundland accepted because of the volatility of the energy stuff, is that before I viewed it as sort of a problem of stagnation, but now I'm starting to see it as a challenge of the steady state, which is when you look at the health of the region, it has some traditional industries that are trucking along, doing quite well, competitive in international markets, but they're not growing they're still generating that same GDP every year. So it's a strength. But then the real puzzle is, as opposed to reinvigorating them, it's really a question of how do you allow them to do more in the region or do you want them to do more? And so the macro picture going forward is, unless there's a severe kind of protectionist shock out of the US that cuts off our exports or if China loses its appetite for lobster and things like that, it's probably just going to be the economy keeps trucking along at uh, close to a 0% growth rate, but average incomes are still pretty high. One of the issues that's been coming up more and more at events we speak at is international observers, when we talk about the region, which they see as small, they actually ask, why does it need to grow? What problem does that solve? And again, in the past, I think it's been easier to answer that question around population aging or paying for services. But increasingly, we're seeing an electorate and a public in the region and observers on the outside that don't really see growth as a solution to anything. So my chair might be at risk since I'm supposed to be studying how to get things growing. Uh, the appetite for it seems to be waning. Well, I'm personally surprised by that. Like, you know, I've been, as you probably know, looking at this region for a long time, trying to understand why we trail the rest of the country in economic growth. We have been, you know, averaging about 1% less growth for decades. Um, PEI is finally growing at the national level, the only province in the region to do so consistently. And, and guess what? The reason they're growing is because their population is growing. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, as their economy grows, of course, they have the ability to afford better services for their population. So, you know, I'm having a hard time. I never understood the concept of no growth as a way to, you know, uh, be successful economically. And I guess, you know, not, I'm not an economist, but I do know that we have, we have a really good uh, example of what growth means when we take a look at a small province like, uh, like PEI, which has done extremely well based on uh, both uh, po population growth that's actually driven to some extent um, economic growth. And, you know, finally we're starting to see population growth all, you know, throughout the Maritimes, at least, Newfoundland's another story. But, you know, you got to think that we're going to start to be getting closer to the average economic uh, GDP numbers uh, with sustained population growth, don't you think? So you raise a really interesting point because the real issue is population growth. If I take GDP growth, I can decompose it into two things. One is the average 
GDP, GDP per capita. And then there's population uh, multiplied by that to give you total GDP. If you look at integrated economies, which is when you have labor and capital that can move between provinces, you get this equilibrium relationship where average incomes converge to this uh, ratio. So we're always going to be 80% of the average income of, say, Ontario. So what that means in the long run, our growth of GDP is really only tied to our population growth. And so when we think about what causes population growth, it tends to be things like getting more exports, getting more investment. And so if there's a tendency to raise that average income in the short run, it draws in more population from elsewhere. And that's what the cities are doing in the region. So the cities are growing even in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia as fast as any cities their size in the rest of Canada. And so when you th talk about the strength of growth, looking at the cities, if they weren't being averaged with the rest of the rural economy, they would look like have, pro have economies, they're rapidly growing, the population is increasing leaps and bounds, they're having trouble keeping up. And then PEI, I think when I did some comparisons, it's not a lot different from when you look at the greater Moncton region and then take a geographic area about the same size you're getting the same dynamic just down in that region. And so some of PEI's success looks better than New Brunswick's because it's just a smaller unit and it doesn't have the Northeast being averaged with it. But if I just take what's happening around the Moncton region all the way up to Shediac and places like that, I was able to show you've got the same growth performance, including with population in that sub-region of the province as you have in PEI. So I think when we think about the region now, we have to look at those pockets of success and understand why are they succeeding where they are? Is it the infrastructure? Is it the critical position uh, on the transportation routes like Moncton has? Is it the cities? And that sort of gives us a different path forward from the old days where it used to just be, we had our extractive resource industries and if we got those going, the whole province would grow. And I think what's happened now is we have a much more fragmented economic engine that it's definitely firing hard in places like Moncton and Halifax. It's sputtering up in Bathurst. And the decision we have as policymakers is to think, do we want to reignite Bathurst to get the whole thing going? Or do we want to sort of supercharge what's going on in the places that are doing well and focus the growth effort that we're going to do? But in the long run, this region's growth of GDP is going to be a product of population growth much more than anything else. Yeah, and, and, and just to, you know, just to extend the conversation on this for a minute, you know, uh, we had the country uh, growing at 1% for 60 years or more, nice steady upward growth in population. Uh, hardly had any of that in Atlantic Canada for 50 years. Uh, the consequence is that, you know, we continue to be the most rural part of Canada, and we haven't had the rebalancing that has taken place over the previous 50 years everywhere else in the country. Uh, you know, there are six centers that David and I continue to talk about that are doing well, as well as any other urban areas in Canada, as you mentioned. And, um, you know, um, what we're what we're seeing now is a slow rebalancing of the urban rural uh, population, because most of the new people coming into the region are going to those six, six regions. I think, David, I think it's 75 percent of the growth is coming from those six uh, kind of urban areas. So. Over time, we're going to rebalance uh, our our population to look more like the rest of the Canada. And the benefit to me is that a lot more people will be full time employed, contributing to the economy. And you know that's been one of our Achilles' heels, as you know, for a really long time. Uh, so uh, hopefully, you know that that's going to be rebalanced. Uh, let me ask a couple other questions before I turn you over to David. Um, you know, one of the challenges that we seem to have in this region is that inflation tends to hit us harder than other parts of the country. Can you explain why that is the case, Herb? <laughs> yeah, this comes up a fair bit. One is the cost of living here is a little bit higher for some items than it is in the rest of the country already. So when it grows, it's sort of compounding. It's sort of more acute problem. So for example, gasoline is somewhere around, I think a buck 70 a liter here. I was in Peterborough last week, it was $1.43. And so they got the big spike like we did, but it came down a lot faster. And we don't really talk about why was there so much more adjustment uh, in the other markets than we're seeing here? Is there something we're doing differently with how we regulate gasoline prices and things like that? 
The other vulnerability just comes from the fact that a lot of the income earners in this region are middle income for the most part now with lower income as well and seniors. And so you have a group that doesn't have a lot of capacity to grow its income when the purchasing power erodes. But in other regions of the country where they're deploying two earners into the workforce or they have access to things like public transit to substitute for commuting by car, they're able to mitigate some of the effects. But our urban system is going to make it difficult to deal with things like gasoline prices. Uh, Our high dependence on electricity means we're vulnerable to if NB power or Nova Scotia power has to raise rates, it's going to hit harder. Uh, We don't have the diversified energy base. And when we've looked at cost of living and well-being, it's you really have shelter costs and energy costs, home heating, electricity, gasoline, which are the big drivers of how houses, households do. Even with food prices, households have the ability to sort of substitute away from expensive things like beef and into cheaper things like chicken uh, when prices are going way up. So I think our vulnerability is sort of some of it's because when prices have been stable, We've been able to sort of spread the population out and use commuting to replace paying for a more expensive place in the city, things like that. And then when you get these increase in gasoline prices, anyone who's got to pay for gasoline to get where they're going, it's going to be a a really rough month because it's like having a mortgage payment going up. And on top of that, now with house prices going up and mortgage rates going up, you're going to see even uh, less experience with this higher cost of living economy that's coming in. If you live in Toronto, you're just used to prices being high and growing. And so I think you have a bit more, that experience allows you to sort of think about ways that you can mitigate or get away from the problem. But in this region, the sense I had over the last two years is everybody's just been caught off guard by a a heated real estate market, increasing prices. It just, no one seemed to know what to do. And it's that experience will sort of make some of it go away. What I'm more worried about is, if the recession hits this region hard uh, that's coming on with these interest rate hikes, uh, I don't know if we have the strength outside of the public sector employment to absorb it. Right. I, I just want to follow up on a question that we've just uh, sort of touched on is that the influx of people coming into this region from elsewhere. Um, obviously, one of the things that is good about that is it provides more workforce uh, labor uh, to a market that seems to be struggling at the moment. In fact, you know, here's an interesting thing that, that you know as well as I do is that even with in- increasing population, our unemployment number is going down. It's going down to the lowest levels that I've ever seen in this region. So, you know, population growth is uh, contributing to job growth clearly. Uh, but it's having an impact, obviously, on on things. Can you want to talk about the impact, uh, maybe some of the negative impacts that the influx of new people coming into this region are having? Well, it, it's not so much I'd call them negative impacts as it's increasing competition for a lot of things like uh, competition for housing, competition for access to health care, like just more people with needs. With, again, our the real estate markets in New Brunswick, haven't added that capacity in housing the same way they have in other markets. And so this sudden influx, which by standards of other provinces, like when I was living in Calgary, which went from 600,000 to 1.2 million in just 25 years, it was a much more rapid clip. The market was able to build and absorb a lot easier than it seems to here. And so this is again where the challenge in the Atlantic region seems to be more around the capacity to adjust in a hurry Uh, to absorb that population coming in and keep them. I do think that the biggest risk to this region right now is there's no access to healthcare for such a large proportion of the population. And when you factor in that it's really last in as the uh, least likely to get access, you're going to start to see some of that reverse migration if we don't get it solved. And I'm in that boat as well. I'm one of the New Brunswickers that don't have a family doctor, and it's starting to become a real issue. As I head towards 60, is this a place I can safely stay if they're not going to find a way to give access to care? Now, the housing market's already starting to cool and things like that, which is suggestive that either some supply is coming online or people are starting to return, as has been pointed out before in other markets. So places around Toronto are starting to soften after the initial out migration from COVID. 
and people are now saying they want to be back in the city. So one of the things I think we have to pay attention to is that anytime you have growth, people are going to grumble because it upsets the equilibrium that you're used to where you can get things easily. You don't get stuck in traffic and things like that. And unless you have government and agents in your economy that can react quickly and timely to that growth, it's just going to create negativity around newcomers, uh, competition for things that are there. And we always have to remember, too, that the problem with labor force is that as quickly as we're adding people, we've got people aging out and choosing to retire because of the burnout from COVID. So we've had a lot of accelerated retirements in healthcare just because people are burned out after two years. And we can't possibly recruit enough to replace them at the rate we're going. And so we need some innovative thinking to come into the region as well and start to resolve some of these problems. And they've been around for 20 years. So whatever innovation we're going to do, it's time to pick up the pace. And some of it, I'm hearing the green shoots on it. But again, the barriers to doing innovative things in this region just seem to frustrate a lot of entrepreneurs and problem solvers. We're losing them to other regions right now as well. So I think we're going to come back to that, but I did want to just pick up on that issue of being able to manage growth. You know, this is a problem. We've been saying we need growth, we need growth, we need growth. Then we got growth and nobody was prepared for it. Because if you look at the departmental plans, particularly in New Brunswick, they were planning for education enrollment to decline. They were planning for healthcare overall numbers to decline. Uh, the whole, they were talking about which, which roads and bridges to close around the province they were getting ready, gearing up for a long period of decline, even as the over here, somebody was saying, we got to grow. And actually, we added 40,000 to the population in New Brunswick since 2016, and nobody was ready for that growth. So I think your point about you need to, you know, if you're going to grow, you need to have the, the doctors, you need to have the service New Brunswick workers, you need to have the, 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 you need to be able to respond to that growth. And I don't think we did a particularly good job of that. And I think that's causing a lot of these problems. But I wanted to ask you about inflation, a very specific question. The, the inflation rate on things like seafood has gone up much higher here than the rest of the country. PEI has led the country with, and New Brunswick is second in terms of the growth in inflation in, on seafood. Do you think that's because our, our, the, the, these are exported products and they're getting a better price in New York and they're just basically bypassing their local market? And if that's the case, should we have some sort of export controls? I'm, I'm just being provocative here, Herb, but I'd like to know your answer to that question. Why should we have inflation on, on seafood twice the rate is in Ontario? Well, again, I, it's, it's more likely a, a dual-sided uh, process. One is how the local market adjusts to supply that's available and coming in and how much is committed to going to other markets. So through all those supply chains and pre-negotiated contracts. So generally, when you see prices going up a lot, it means that supply is relatively scarce compared to the demand that you have. In Ontario, they must be doing a better job at paying a price that exporters from the region find attractive. And they've got the volume to drive it as opposed to just charging more per pound. One example I can give you is when Mad Cow shut in Alberta beef from the US market, we'd all expected that beef prices were gonna fall, but instead they went up. And one of the things we learned was that we'd been importing beef to Alberta from New Zealand. And when the Alberta beef got shut in, it was a premium product, which displaced the cheaper New Zealand beef. So all of a sudden the sales pitch to us from the grocery stores was beef is less expensive. You're getting the premium product at a good price, but it's just more than the cheaper stuff we were selling you. So you get these strange things just through the supply chains that it may be a commitment of uh, supply is going to other markets. And what we haven't balanced is how much was being left in the market for local needs. But I will say it hurt. I took my kids down to St. Martin's and they wanted lobster rolls. And I think we paid 25 bucks for a hot dog bun size of lobster. So compared to during the uh, COVID glut where some people drop six off on my front steps because they had too many that they can't get rid of. <laughs> it's really that, I think, again, the whipsawing of the prices that really gets people's attention. Most of us in Canada didn't eat lobster because it was always expensive. It was sort of seen as a luxury item, and it was unusual moving here and just seeing how often people ate lobster because it was cheaper. And so in a lot of ways, you, you're probably just getting used to how the rest of the country uh, sees the product now because you're not competing with your neighbor, you're competing with 
restaurants in downtown Toronto. Yeah, that's exactly. The world's getting uh, I agree with that. Getting a lot flatter for New Brunswick yeah. and PEI and Nova Scotia. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. So I just wanted to quickly get your uh, prediction around this inward migration. We've been talking about it already today, but but do you think we're going to continue to see people moving in from Ontario? I just looked at the numbers before our conversation here today and in the first quarter New Brunswick attracted 5,000 or something from the rest of the country. And it was uh, still high, higher than it was last year in the first quarter. Um, but as you say, there's been articles, there's been some anecdotal evidence that people are moving back. Do you think we'll continue to see people moving in here from places like uh, Ontario? Or do you think that that'll sort of go back to historic uh, levels of inward and outward migration? Well, if I were betting, I would say we're going to revert to historic levels of in-migration. And it's still going to be people coming from Ontario and Alberta, people have been away and coming back. We know a lot of the uh, in-migrants are return migration after some period away. Uh, when we studied migration to Alberta, half of those migrants are back within 10 years. Uh, so again, these statistics on in and out migration, you always want to look at the detail of the churn. Where did they leave from? Where are they coming back to? Are the young leaving? Are they older when they come back? And what's the trade-off of losing a 25-year-old at the start of the career versus gaining a 45 or 50-year-old who might be interprovincial commuting, uh, which is what's happening in some regions of the province. In my class today, I asked the students, there are 20 of them, how many intend to be here in five years? Five of 20 hands went up. So whatever's coming in, we're not doing a good job of convincing younger, educated uh, students that there's a future here if you want a good job. And that was their main response when I asked, why would you leave? And they said, well, we'll stay if someone's going to pay us what they'll pay us in other places. So again, when we look at these statistics, I think we should always be focused on what's happening with the young people who are getting this university education. Where are they going? How likely are they to stay? Because you can try and get them back later, but uh, it just seems that we're missing an opportunity by not creating those jobs and opportunities that will keep them around. And to be fair, Halifax is attracting a lot of those young New Brunswickers. The city's now got that vibe that <laughs> it's pulling them in in droves. And I think that Moncton's still got some of that, but Fredericton's getting a little stodgier is the impression I get. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll, well uh, for all of our folks listening from Fredericton, you got to get less stodgy <laughs> if you're going to keep uh, Dr. Herb Emery and his acolytes uh, in the community. Um, well, so I should be the young guy in the population. So maybe that would help. If we kept some more young people around. Before I flip it back to Don, I wanted to ask you, we are unabashedly of the view that we need two to 3% GDP growth. Don, and I've talked about that. It's, it's an underlying theme of this podcast. We don't understand why this region has to grow at a slower rate. We've got lots of ample land. We've got lots of, there's lots of good reasons why we should be growing at a strong rate. Uh, and then, as a result, not having to push up tax rates to, to record levels to pay for public services. So so we believe it. I think Don and I are 100 percent there. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, because PEI is there more or less, and it is about population growth, but they've also led the country in exports growth. So it's it's not just, you know, local consumption, it's exports, because, by the way, most of local consumption of PEI is all imported all their TVs and cars and cell phones and most of their food, believe it or not, even on the island, with the exception of potatoes and, and uh, fish, is all imported. So you bring in all that population, they're bringing a lot of imports with them. So you need to off the, offset that with exports. So for I just wanted to get your thoughts on, maybe this is too much to ask you, Herb, all in one blow, but are there four or five things, just bullet points that you think we should do to get ourselves back to a sustained level of real GDP growth over the next decade? Are there sort of rapid fire issues if you were advising government that you would say we need to do? There's one, grow exports. So in a small open economy, you have to think about growth as an order of operations. Like what can you do first? What will that cause to happen second? And there's a big push in Atlanta, Canada to go with, I think the reverse order of operations that we know works. So. One view is you bring the population in first and then hope that the opportunities emerge by glutting the labor market. And this is also a discussion that happens in Alberta when they want to transition away from energy and into IT. They had a proposal to glut the labor market for 
software engineers thinking that would attract the Googles and the, the companies like that. The only thing we've seen work by looking at Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Northern Ontario, you go across, is you start with exports, that draws in capital, then you draw in population. You can get to 3% growth if you can draw the value of your exports. And so it can be quantity that you put out, it can be increasing value add, or it can just be increasing the price by finding new markets. Uh, and so then to get exports, what does government in the region need to do? Focus with laser-like uh, <laughs> laser -like accuracy on the conditions that make exports competitive. You've got companies that are already good, make them great, let them scale more. Uh, the view that we need to always go after startups to try and grow something new, that's a portfolio strategy that's good to do, but it's not going to replace what you have out of, say, a forest sector, your ocean sector. I really like the blue strategies that are going on federally and provincially, especially with the super cluster, to take a bigger look at the potential to come out of the ocean resources, including the tech companies, because that one's got a natural reason to be here. You can export out of that resource. That will start to draw in a lot of population, including high human capital. Other export industries that are coming up would be around things like the hydrogen opportunities, if you can develop those in the technology. But behind that is also the small modular nuclear reactors. That's not about just provincial generation of power. That's an export industry that you're going to manufacture. If you think about bringing in that manufacturing base, which is what the success of the region was after World War II, you can get to those high growth rates. But it's not going to happen just by sort of sitting back and saying, uh, you know, if only Ottawa would give us more money, we'd be able to do this or that, the other thing. It's not going to come from saying things like, I think that the forest companies uh, need to pay higher royalties all the time. It's not going to come from not fighting things like the softwood lumber tariff. What you need in the region today, which isn't here like in the past, is governments that are champions for their export industries. Governments that understand that this is what creates wealth and opportunity in the region. Frank McKenna had that focus. He was trying to diversify as well. But if you keep going back in time, you will see that premiers used to fight really hard to get these industries scaled up and to get into markets and things like that. The most recent speech I heard was from Danny Williams explaining why they did Muskrat Falls and not just little projects on the island of Newfoundland. And he pitted it as, if they could successfully develop an energy resource for export through Muskrat Falls and transmission, they would give the uh, province of Newfoundland and Labrador a growth opportunity in a future that is fundamentally different than one that's just based on generating for local needs with no big vision in mind. Now you can debate whether or not the cost overruns justify uh, taking that risk, but he was really the last premier I've heard in a long time who put it in terms of a bigger vision for their jurisdiction over just trying to keep people happy with low power rates in the short run. And that's where, again, he doesn't say, he didn't talk about Muskrat Falls in isolation. He talked about Muskrat Falls in terms of oil and gas, uh, offshore type things, reinvigorating rural communities around those opportunities. That's sort of what's missing in the region now is we've got people who sort of want to be uh, keep everyone happy and pulling along, not rock the boat. But you don't see those champions of business anymore, champions of exporters, or people who start first with exporter competitiveness matters. In a lot of cases, when I was uh, at a meeting of the Atlantic Growth Strategy, we were supposed to be talking about infrastructure to grow the region, and it started moving into last mile broadband for rural areas which is an important redistributive thing or giving equal access to those areas. But I paused and asked the chair of the committee, what is the goal of the Atlantic growth strategy? Is growth a goal or is it the goal? And their answer was, well, it's definitely a goal. But what you have to remember is that if it's just one of many priorities that you have, it's not going to get the same focus and outcome that you get when it's the singular uh, goal and focus. And what I think we're seeing in Canada over the last five to 10 years and in the region is that growth that used to be really important, as Don put it, to try and get this region caught up with the haves, it's sort of fallen off over other things like equity-seeking uh, policies or 
making sure things are fair or making sure that people are happy with what's about to happen. And the Ivany Commission, I think, identified that in 2014 as one of the impediments to Nova Scotia moving ahead was just culturally, you didn't have that focus on the business sector and getting back to growth. But if you want that 3% growth, and if you want to get the population of this region uh, up above 2 million to 3 million, you're going to need exports to do it. Otherwise, why are you living here? What's the engine that keeps you around? And Saskatchewan, by the way, is at risk right now of falling back from 1.2 million down to 1 million if the federal policy of weaning us off of fossil fuels takes place. We did some modeling. If you remove oil exports from Saskatchewan, you reduce the population from 1.2 million to 1 million. And so that's sort of what we know, don't talk about enough is that you, people don't like these industries, but if you remove them, what have you got to replace them to keep that population around? And the Northeast of the province has been living that in New Brunswick for a while, is that they've lost their industry, they're losing their population and they're stuck. So how do they get back? The Portobello Dunes humming. They're trying a bunch of things like green hydrogen. If they can get that port moving, they'll draw population in. Port St. John, terrific infrastructure coming in, real opportunities. Some numbers we did for them, if they can pull it off and keep the business linkages in the region, it would add 30,000 people to St. John over the next decade. If they screw it up, they're going to add 30,000 either Moncton or Maine. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not a given. You will generate the wealth. You will generate the population. If you want to keep that where you are, it's about competitiveness. Well, you know, I think the good news, Herb, is that over the last six months, David and I have had a, uh, an extensive sort of opportunity to look at all the accelerators and incubators across most of the region. And through those conversations, uh, we've come away feeling very confident about the kinds of companies that are being developed because the focus is on exports, almost not exclusively, but right, David, to a very high high degree. And uh, and, and to some extent, it, it's, it's, it's going to happen without government leadership, uh, I think. And, uh, you know, if we look at PEI as an example, they've got that bio alliance uh, going over there. Uh, nearly a couple thousand jobs already. Uh, this year, they're going to have $400 million of exports. Those are well-paying jobs. They're attracting people to the island to work in these industries. And like a PEI can do it, the rest of the region can do it too. We, we just see so many examples. We've done a lot on energy recently. You talk about SMRs. Obviously, that's a, people don't realize that it's a major export opportunity uh, for New Brunswick and NB Power for sure. Green hydrogen, similarly, uh, even tidal power, you know, they have the ability eventually to, you know, to run 2 million homes out of the Bay of Fundy. Well, you know, we don't have 2 million homes here. <laughs> to, to, so they have an export opportunity there. So almost every conversation, right, David, it seems to be that there's a, you know, the, an export opportunity, planetary, planetary technologies, you know, about taking carbon out of the air, you know, that's an export business. Just about everything we've talked about is export uh, oriented. So, uh, you know, we've come away from these conversations, honestly, feeling better and better about what's happening underneath the surface. And so one of the reasons we're doing these podcasts to alert people that there's some really good stuff going on. So uh, we're very encouraged by this. Uh, you know, I think that uh, one of the things that we, you know, that the ambition here of growing the population is pretty significant. I mean, we've had the premium of Nova Scotia, you know, promote the idea of maybe 2 million Nova Scotians by 2060. That seems like a long ways away, but still a million in New Brunswick by 2040, you know, uh, 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 you know, do almost doubling the population in Newfoundland, um, uh, over some period of time. And, and of course, PEI is going to hit 200,000 people, you know, uh, reasonably soon, soon. You talk about uh, Calgary doubling in 25 years. They're going to double. They're going to double faster than that, the way they're going, because they're going at 2% a year. So, you know, uh, but there are some risks, uh, you know, uh, with, uh, with population growth. We talked about them before. And I think, uh, you know, one of them that I wondered if you had any comment on is related to immigration. We know that 
this is a region that is really not used to having a lot of diversity in its populations. And, uh, you know, you probably see a little bit more diversity working at the university than, than most New Brunswickers do. But, you know, there, there's a bit of resistance to that. Uh, what are you seeing in that, in that, in that score? <laughs> well, having lived in other places where the diversity just happened, you can resist or grumble all you want, but in a growing region, it's it's just going to happen and everyone gets used to it and things move along pretty well. It, it tends to be regions that feel left behind when that growth is, say, happening in Moncton, Dieppe, but it's not happening in the smaller communities outside it. And so in a lot of cases, like in UK with Brexit, the people who were resistant to the diversity and the EU weren't coming from London and the cosmopolitan places. It was coming from the places that felt they were left behind and struggling. And then when they saw migrants coming in, they associated it with a problem as opposed to uh, people who are coming in and probably doing a lot of valuable service work that was needed in the region. So with a lot of it, I'm, I think diversity is good, but I just think it's going to happen with population growth because mathematically uh, the, the uh, British Isles population who might be migrating into the region isn't large in number compared to the regions with much larger populations looking to move to a place like this. And I do think that the opportunities that are here, especially with some of the more entrepreneurial cultures, we've actually been unable to hold some of them. So between Chinese business interests, Korean uh, and others, they've tried the region, but a lot of them have relocated when they got frustrated with the business climate. So I think we already could be much more diverse than we are in the region. But when I go to, again, St. John or Moncton, Fredericton, you're already seeing the diversity. And so urban areas seem to be uh, growing much more quickly around that. It's, it's a problem that you're always going to have to manage just between haves and have-nots within your jurisdiction. Uh, growth is going to be dislocating for a lot of people anyway. Like I was being called a CFA when I moved here in 2016. I wasn't used to that kind of thing. But when I first moved to Alberta, they called me an Ontarian, which was a bad thing at the time because it wasn't that long after the NEP. So this local kind of xenophobia does break down over time just because with growth, the uh, the old founding stock becomes diluted compared to uh, the, the broader population that's there. But I would guess if you go to Halifax right now to downtown, it doesn't look anything like it did 20, 30 years ago. The interests of the population are changing abruptly, which is also going to upset some people because... Uh, I don't know if they still have their minister of Celtic heritage there or to preserve it. But again, in a lot of places, this is also an upside of growth that the diversity does make for a more interesting place in the long run, even if some people just don't like change. So Herb, Don, uh, Don talked a little bit earlier about some of the energy opportunities and we've had podcasts on all of them. Listeners can go through the archive and and have a good listen to all of those but i guess i wanted to ask you specifically about it because the energy sector has actually waned in its importance in this region because we lost offshore natural gas off nova scotia um you know so there's there's and and then if we look to the future you know you've got a, a huge refinery which is a, the largest exporter in new brunswick that's probably at some point in the next 10 or 20 years or so is going to be, you know, reducing its impact in the, in the region. Um, do you, can you give our listeners some thoughts about the energy sector as we transition to more greener sources, cleaner sources of energy? What are your thoughts? Are we going to actually be able to continue to see energy as a driver of GDP and growth, or are we just going to shut everything down and import our power from Quebec? Uh, you know, Don mentioned SMRs. So what are your thoughts on, 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 on energy as an economic engine, whether it's hydrogen or SMRs or, or, or other opportunities in the region moving forward? So the, it's a really good question. There's two observations I want to make, though. First, David, you have a number that's always uh, been one of those stop me in my tracks kind of numbers that you put out. The total capital value, total capital lost in energy projects for the most part in New Brunswick alone since 2008, I think it was, was $40 billion. So opportunities that were here, 
that the province failed to deliver on. And some of them were like Energy East and some of them were like LNG. But the projects we're talking about today, they've been around before and the province didn't manage to land them. One that stands out for me is Point Lepro, that they did manage to get the nuclear reactor built. It has allowed the New Brunswick grid to be mostly carbon free. And you think about where we'd be without it with carbon pricing coming on. As expensive as you think the refurbishment was, it might be a lot worse if we didn't have it. Like what would we be doing for energy supply? The second thing that we have to remember is that historically, low cost energy was a source of competitive advantage for exporters to locate in the region, particularly in pulp and paper. When you move towards the free trade era where it was not as okay for exporters to have a subsidy coming through things like energy, it resulted in a situation where energy just became another sector of the economy as opposed to an input to industrialization. Now, whether or not you could ever go back to creating that cheap energy again to give an advantage locationally for people to come in like Quebec can do with hydro, uh, that's a big challenge. Now, going forward, this is where things like small modular reactors become an interesting opportunity. You're building off of the strength that came in through Point Lepro. You're building off of the capacity to do the development in New Brunswick. But at the same time, there's a constant tension around uh, the population isn't, some of the population isn't comfortable with nuclear, so they will agitate against it. You have problems that you need to get movement on the regulatory process to make sure they can get through the different hurdles they need to meet in a timely way so that external investors will come in at the time points that they need. You need to have, be working through uh, First Nations issues. You need to be getting through uh, First Nations issues in terms of uh, participation in the projects and, and sharing the benefits around. Just to clarify, like Beldoon has established. So what you need, in other words, is a lot of leadership from government, not in money so much as making sure that things are moving quickly so that you can realize these opportunities. Now, the turning point that's coming through renewables is that if we go to a renewable future, what we're really talking about is we're as big as we're going to be now and we're just replacing what we've got with renewables as much as we can with probably some backstop with imports. So again, we'll be green, but it's not tied to a larger region as the outcome. It's really tied into we are what we are, we're just going to be greener. And we might actually be less industrial because if you talk to the utilities, we have more than enough generation as long as we don't industrialize further. We have more than enough generation as long as we don't increase population. And we probably have more than enough generation already if we just concentrate the population out of rural and into the cities, as Dawn suggested, we may be going through a transition anyway to match the rest of the country. So when we talk about these energy issues, we're not just talking about replacing what we do today with a Beldoon for something else. We're talking about, do we wanna be a, a producer for export? We're talking about, do we wanna take the technologies we're developing and do something more like a small modular reactor isn't just producing power for here. We're talking about, do we see an industrial future or a manufacturing future outside of a couple centers? Or are we moving into being a service dominated society concentrated in a few smaller places? In which case it's much easier to make that green transition occur. We also have to remember that no one's looking out for New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and PEI to transform themselves into energy superpowers because we have a federal government that's basically an owner of a dam in Labrador and they need a place for the power to go. So if we get the Atlantic Loop, we just become basically the market for someone else's problem power. And if we're going to take that power, no one's told us what the price per kilowatt hour is as far as I know. But again, the regionalization of the energy system can be an advantage if we're the drivers of it with our technologies and investments, but it can also be the end of uh, opportunities because we just become the end user and we basically just negotiate purchasing agreements. And this is where the leadership is missing in the region again, is that these are issues that I think premiers and opposition leaders should be arguing about, that what is their vision for the economy? If they just come in and say, we're going to be greener, I can do that just by not producing anything and being a healthcare system. But if we're going to have those exports and we're going to keep people coming to the region, we have to think about not just how do we get the energy that's clean and cheap and secure, but how do we actually take 
that transitional opportunity with the expertise we have in the region, and we become the leaders. We become the ones that are going out to the other places that have carbon problems and saying, look what we've got for you, which is what Moltex and ARC are trying to do. And OPG in Ontario, like it is a real opportunity, but when you get things happening, like Germany says, we don't count nuclear as green. Where was the pushback from any of the leadership in the region? Just to say, uh, you may want to rethink that because it's non-emitting. It is actually satisfying the criteria. Where's the pushback on the federal government to include nuclear in the green bonds? And so, again, maybe we're doing it politely behind the scenes. But uh, if you go back to leadership 10, 20, 30 years ago, premiers used to be a little louder uh, and champion a bit more for the region. So with energy, I think every opportunity you guys have discussed is there. What the Atlantic region has to start thinking about is it's not enough to have the opportunity. You're competing with other regions that also have the opportunities. And what are you going to do to turn that opportunity into realized dollars, realized realized jobs, realized population? And that's the missing piece in the region right now, is it's been too easy to say, look at us, we got a lead. And then just like with tech, you look around a few years later, the lead's gone. Mm. Other people are doing cybersecurity now. Like that was a real opportunity five, 10 years ago. Now it's a dogfight just to stay in the market. Yep, that's right. You have to jump in and jump on those opportunities. I I do have to uh, uh, tell the listeners a little bit of your inside baseball comment. You said the federal government owned a dam in Labrador. (laughs) What you meant was they have loan guarantees against that, that, uh, that dam. So if it goes bust, uh, they're on the hook. So I think I just wanted to clarify that for the for the listeners. I have one last question here, Herb, for you. And, and I do have to push you a bit on rural development. And I think Don and I might actually be a little bit at odds on this one. I've been going around the province the last few months talking to people in Woodstock, people in Minto, people in Harvey, people in Kedgewick. And everywhere I go, every mayor, every business leader uh, is demanding their share of immigration is demanding more housing, is demanding that government do more to ensure that workforce needs are met from all parts of the province. They are wide open to immigration. In fact, the People's Party of New Brunswick or whatever that People's Alliance Party, which would normally you would think be anti-immigrant, actually when they went door to door in their rural communities, people were saying we want immigrants because we're running out of workers in these rural communities. So I think we're reaching almost a tipping point where the smaller communities are going to resent the Monktons, they're going to resent the Fredericktons, they're going to resent the Halifaxes uh, if their needs aren't met. So I, I guess I want to push you a little bit on that. Do you think, are you telling us that you think the only opportunities are in the large urban centers and we should just turf the rural areas? Or are you saying, I guess what, what I'm asking you is, is there any hope for rural development in Atlantic Canada? Of course there's hope. It's a choice at this point. Does Do New Brunswickers, Nova Scotians, Prince Edward Islanders want there to be rural growth? And the reason it's a choice or a question that has to be posed is because the opportunities aren't going to come from bringing in a new industry that's totally new. It's going to be about, as you've said, doing more with agricultural opportunities, new crops, new things for export. Those opportunities are all there and they're being done in other parts of the country. And so when you really think about it, the problems you're describing are also the problem of the Atlantic region is that in a lot of ways, we're now considered rural in comparison to Toronto, Montreal and Vancouver. The federal government can book a lot of growth just by adding people to those three large centers and growing the the, uh, dormitory areas around them. But what's missing in their plan is that instead of talking about rural, we're talking about peripheral provinces, smaller provinces. What we do are really good at is based in our traditional industries with resources. Can we do more with those? Or are we going to have headwinds because people don't want to be a resource exporting economy? They want to be knowledge-based. Knowledge-based economies are difficult to do in a rural setting. Traditional manufacturing economies with new tech, you could put those into any rural community and they do great. You could even get a high human capital workforce. I just read this history of Resolute, the forest company, And one of their uh, subsidiaries that came in, when they had their mill at Sault Ste. Marie, which was a tiny town at the time, call it tens of thousands, 
they had a hundred scientists working in their R and D shop in Sault Ste. Marie. They had a hundred more in, uh, in, uh, that nice community that Brian Mulroney's from on the St. Lawrence Bay Como. And so if you go back historically to these resource industries, they used to put the R and D into rural. If I go to certain industries now, like if I go out to Sussex, where you see the nursery that JDI has, they've got scientists working in Sussex. These industries will put people with high human capital into rural areas and you will have a vibrant community. But if you don't want to use those industries and take, make the most of them, then you're going to basically make a choice that rural is expendable. We're going to move and concentrate our population to get the agglomeration effects in the cities themselves. But remember, if we do that to uh, Albert County, uh, Toronto is going to do that to New Brunswick. And one of the growth strategies that's out there nationally is moving the mobile population out of a place like New Brunswick and keeping the rest of us comfortable with transfers. But the federal government has less appetite for trying to drive jobs growth in a region like this, unless it's through something like the open super cluster where it, to them makes sense. But again, it, it comes back to New Brunswickers, Nova Scotians, Prince Edward Islanders, and even Newfoundlanders have to decide if rural economy matters, they have to take a hard look at what keeps people in the rural economy happy, healthy, and well-paid. And are they prepared to back those industries and those opportunities? In other cases, what we're seeing in Newfoundland is they're prepared to let them go. They're buying out the communities. Uh, what we're seeing down in the Bay of Fundy is the banks are pulling out, the post offices are pulling out, and they will hit a tipping point where maybe it doesn't make sense to sustain more services in that region. We saw with healthcare reform an appetite for repurposing rural emergency departments because I guess there won't be the population growth moving those services into the larger city areas. This is what happens in uh, an economy that isn't growing and isn't prioritizing those opportunities in rural. But of course you can grow rural, rural Canada. Like we have tons of land, we have tons of things we could do but we need infrastructure to support them. We need the R&D investment like we used to make. And we need to direct young people that there's a career in there. The biggest problem is no one goes into that labor force. They need to sustain those industries. Uh, but in the West, they've done a terrific job of automating a lot of those kinds of uh, harvesting, planting, and things like that. So the opportunities are there. I will say that the region just has to start making some different choices if that's what they want to do. If we're just talking about it, we just slowly watch the decline happen, then it really means we have made our choice. We placed our bets on Moncton and Halifax. And I think Donald Savoie, his 2014 book, Looking for Bootstraps, basically predicted that the long-run trajectory of the region is really just focused on Moncton for the whole place. It'll be really big and the rest of us will just be hollowed out. I have a slightly different perspective. Um, you know, I... I think that one of the ways of maintaining uh, rural, if you look at the population of rural in Canada over the last 60 years, it's about the same number as it was 60 years ago. About I think about 5 million people live in what is technically called rural. Your communities under 5,000, I think, is Stats Canada's uh, definition. And I've been promoting for some time the idea of economic hubs. Uh, and if you look at Atlantic Canada, there's roughly 30 what I call hub centers that uh, within a 30-minute drive or so, at least 85% of the population live within those economic zones. <clears throat> and one way to create uh, opportunity for people living in rural is to have nearby small urban places like the Miramichi and Bathurst and those places be more successful and grow. And they have a much better opportunity of growing their population because they already have critical mass. They have, you know, infrastructure like hospitals and, you know, schools and post-secondary. All these, all these 30 centers have some, sort, some form of post-secondary. So they have the ingredients to be able to develop a population growth strategy, attract people to those communities, and on a small scale, do what Charlottetown has done. Charlottetown, with a population of 25,000 a couple of years ago, you know, have, have, is the model for what is possible even in small urban centers. So, like, if we had a strategy that said, uh, you know, we're going to do a better job at making sure service delivery is done more efficiently, 
again, 30 centers, you know, can serve 85 plus percent of the population, maybe create economic opportunities for people living nearby. Here's the problem that I see in the land. I'm not originally from here, but this, this is a problem. You know, uh, I see, you know, people are not prepared to commute in Atlantic Canada to the same extent other people in other parts of the country is. So, you know, we I did research that, you know, people won't commute more than 30 minutes here. That's, you know, we've got a lower threshold for pain when it comes to commuting. But, you know, if you could if you could convince people they could live in rural areas, but they might have to commute to a nearby small urban area for a job because that's where the really job growth will, will go. And, and I, I, I don't disagree that resource industries are in rural areas and that, that's an opportunity for sure. But I, I'm talking about long-term sustainability, year-round jobs, not seasonal jobs, you know, that, you know, in, in New Brunswick, you only have seven centers to be successful. You already have three, you know, pretty successful. You know, how can we get the other four to be successful? Anyway, that's my rant for the day. Um. <laughs> well, that's a good rant. The uh, I think how I would sort of plug into that is at the middle of your hub, you still need that anchor industry or anchor economy. Sure. sure. And so I think what a lot of these potential hubs are missing is that uh, that anchor or the big industry to come in. So if I look at a Bathurst, it's got all the potential you're describing, especially when you look around the greater region. And they don't seem averse to commuting up there. Uh, a lot right. of people I meet are already doing it. What they're missing is that big focal industry that they used to have uh, right. that draws people in the first place. And so I guess I would agree with what you're saying. I think most of the growth we're seeing in Canada and the U.S. now is that kind of urban fringe where you've got competition for the residents, right. uh, especially when you have <laughs> New Brunswick tax-induced uh, migration outside of the cities. Uh, to pay a slightly lower rate. What I worry about with that model, though, going forward with the green revolution is that it's going to be really expensive to live outside of the concentrated centers. And I don't know if EVs are going to work well uh, as they would, say, in a dense city where you don't have to do the same kind of mileage. So with, with I, I think I agree with both of you. The opportunities are huge. The mystery of the region is what does it take to start translating those things into actual growth. And I think a lot of it just comes down to somebody's got to start making some choices. Somebody's got to start championing one direction over the other. I think that the tragedy of the region is it's been a little rudderless and it's just allowed growth to occur in sort of the path of least resistance, which isn't mm -hmm. necessarily in the best interest in the long run. But again, I don't know how you get elected in this region by being bold anymore. Uh, it seems that you do it by That's not true. upsetting too many people, but we'll see with the federal uh, leadership choice coming up. More inside ball with the uh, dynamic leader for the Conservative Party. So I, I had I made a speech today at lunch, and a lady came up to me after, and she said, "I've been trying to get Don Mills to run for Premier of Nova Scotia." So maybe that's our solution. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think that would work too well. No. <laughs> well, we're, we're, uh, we're, we have so much more to talk uh, about her, but we've kind of used up um, our time. I did, I did want to ask a question because uh, I still believe that we need to lose our have not status in this region. It hurts us. And, uh, you know, if we can get at least um, normal uh, economic growth, we can not be as dependent going forward on transfer payments. I don't know what you feel about that. But, like, you know, uh, Sean Graham had this vision for uh, New Brunswick. And we did research at the time that showed the vast majority of people want to lose that status. They hate it. I hate it. And, uh, you know, do you see any possibility that we could become less have not looking ahead over the next 10 or 15 years? I think it's going to happen, but it's not going to happen because the region chose to be more self-sufficient. I think that the likelihood of higher interest rates, the federal debt trajectory, it's going to be a repeat of the 90s. And just as Don Savoie has written, we're going to be looking for bootstraps in a hurry. And I think that sometimes it's those fiscal shocks that will hit the region that will spur the uh, the bolder thinking and 
we've got to get this done or else. Now, the interesting part, though, that I find is the real paradox of the region is that at least half of people living in this region are living in a half province. If you're Halifax, Moncton, Fredericton, even St. John, it, your experience here is no different than anyone else in the rest of the country. I think it's when you start bringing in what's happening in the more depressed regions, that's the area where the two conundrums going forward is, do you just collapse them and get rid of them? Or do you try and reinvigorate them with the older strategies of job creation and industrial development? And my fear is, is that when I look at places like Northern Ontario, if there isn't leadership that wants to preserve that, then we're going to go the way of the scribers and the, <laughs> the marathons and all the places along the North Shore of Superior that used to be thriving and are now just gas stations. Right. Uh, if you look at the model in Northern Ontario, the mills are all gone in places like Thunder Bay. There's still some smelting in Sudbury, but they basically created giant service hubs for large regions. And I don't think that that's a happy future for the region because this is a producing region. This is an exporting economy. It's people who really, uh, they did a lot of stuff. They were bold. They worked really hard. And that's the culture that the region has. It's just historically, there were so many people here. It's hard to get the wealth up quick enough to sort of bring everyone up to the rest of Canada. But now with labor short, uh, the incomes are high, but you have to sort of get that culture of producing and striving um, back in play. And I think in part, that's what dependence on federal transfers can do after a while and dependence on a large public sector for employment is some of that striving uh, starts to give way to complacency and a belief that you can replace the private sector, business sector opportunities with the more government service-driven stuff. And again, that's not unique to me. That was in the Ivany Commission report as right. one of the challenges in changing the uh, trajectory of Nova Scotia was changing the culture. So I think we're going to have to leave it there. This has been a great uh, conversation. Dr. Emery, we could certainly talk to you for another hour on these issues and more, but we do appreciate you taking the time out today to inform our listeners on these important topics. So thank you very much. I appreciate the chance to come on. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks very much. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.